So today we're going to get into this message, and we've been started, we started this series, Summer Scriptures, and whenever I do a series called Summer Scriptures, we do it every summer. The idea is to go through the scriptures. Typically what we'll do is we'll take one book of the Bible, usually a smaller book, and we'll go chapter by chapter, right? And so today, uh, during this series, we've decided to take the life of one individual in the Bible, and that individual is David. And so we want to just go through his life. The problem is David is mentioned, we said this a couple weeks ago, David is mentioned more in the Bible than guys like Moses and guys like Abraham. He's mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. And so for us to go through every chapter of his life, we would be in Christmas by the time we got done with this series. And you guys would be very bored of hearing me talk. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to go through a portion of his life today in one big chunk. If that's cool with you guys, I'm going to just go through a bunch of chapters and give you the highlights. And then we're going to learn a little bit about it. In doing that today, the portion of his life that we're going through is the worst portion of his life. All right? So two weeks ago, we talked about how Samuel anointed David to be the future king. So he's got this calling on his life that one day he's going to be king. The next thing that happens, uh, Pastor Nathan talked last week, is David goes and fights the giant. And many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. Um, I read a book uh, not too long ago. It was a secular book, wasn't a Christian book, and it was about David and Goliath. So, so it's a very common story. But these are two high points in David's life, right? Later on, we'll read about David finally becoming king, another high point in David's life. But there's this middle part of his life that's not so good. There's this middle portion that's not great. He goes from being the in-law to the king to being an outlaw in real life. And it's during these outlaw years that we want to talk about today. And these are the portions of his life that I'm not going to go through every single chapter. I'm going to just give you the highlights because um, I feel like that's going to be something necessary for all of us. See, we've talked about this before. We've talked about seasons of life that are bad. You guys, if you've been here for a little while, you remember we did a series um, called something about the wild. I can't remember the name of it, but it was something about the wild. And it was all about being in a, in a wilderness season of life. And we did a whole series about that. And then we did a series called Into the Storm. And, and the whole point was how to go through a storm in life. And so we've done these things before. But David's story is a little bit different because those stories are more general. David's story is more specific. David's story is more personal. See, David gets betrayed by someone that he thought was going to take care of him. David gets betrayed by someone he thought loved him and would help him. And so... So his story becomes a little bit more personal. So in today's message, you're going to see some of the personal aspects of his story. And, and then we're going to talk about what that means for us. Um, I feel like all of us at some point have been betrayed. All of us at some point have had somebody turn against us. Uh, we, we tell you stories. Uh, my wife and I have told stories before about being in church and, and being turned on um, by, by a pastor before. And, and, uh, and it was my dad. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't him. Um, <laughs> But we, we tell you stories about how, how, you know, when we were pastoring, you know, we had a, we had a pastor kind of turn on us and treat us bad. And, um, and, and we've, we had to deal with that process. We had to deal with that. That season of life was very difficult. Some of you have been through business dealings and you've been through um, relationships where, where someone you felt like betrayed you and, and you had to go through that season. My wife uh, tells me stories um, from the teaching world and, 
and, and how there's been times whenever she would come up with a good idea and then someone else would take credit for it and get all the, get all the glory for her great idea. And sometimes you just feel, even in those small moments, you feel betrayed or hurt. And so that's kind of how, how David, uh, his life went. So I want to look at a, a quick synopsis. We're going to just run through a bunch of scriptures. I'm going to put the highlights on the screen. Um, and so I want to show you this. So starting in 1 Samuel, that's the big part of our book that we're going through today. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, David kills Goliath. High point. Everything's good. David's having a great time. He kills a giant, cuts off the head. Really cool story. He takes the head to the city of Jerusalem. David didn't have Jerusalem. Israel didn't have Jerusalem. It was still um, being run by the Jebusites. And David takes the head and like shows it off. Like one day I'm going to take that city. Really cool story. We'll save it for another day. Then in chapter 18, the problem is David becomes this warrior and everybody loves David. And Saul, who is the current king, gets jealous of David. And when Saul gets jealous of David, um, the Bible says that he starts throwing spears at David. The Bible says that he tried to pin David against the wall with a spear. And then when he couldn't kill him himself, he decided to send David on a suicide mission. See, Saul had promised David that you can be my son-in-law. You can marry one of my daughters if you kill the giant. David kills the giant and Saul, it's not good enough for, for Saul. And so Saul says in a very weird, twisted story, he says, I want you to go um, kill a hundred Philistines. If any of you know the story, you know he had to bring back a really weird trophy from the Philistines. He had to cut off certain body parts that I can't mention because there's little kids in the room today and bring them back. And Saul thought for sure when he tries to kill these hundred Philistines, this kid's going to get killed. And David comes back. With all the body parts. Very gross, very weird story. But that was his price to get to marry the king's daughter. Um, and so Saul sends him on a suicide mission. That doesn't work. Chapter 19, the Bible says that Saul sends assassins to kill David in his bed. Really cool um, CIA type story. The assassins show up. His wife has taken a statue and a, and a piece of goat fur and put it on the statue's head and hid it in the bed. And they thought that it was kind of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anybody from the 80s remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You know, the, and anyways, it, so the statue in the bed, the, the mannequin in the bed. And so she had all that set up and the assassins fail in killing David. Verse 20, I mean, chapter 20 says that David runs away. Um, in, in chapter 21, David goes to the priest. He, he goes to the house of God. And when he shows up at the tabernacle to the house of God, um, he goes in and he finds food. He finds bread, the Bible says, and he finds a sword. It's actually the sword of Goliath was there. Now I'm going to take a little side, side point here. Whenever you feel like you've been betrayed and you've been hurt, one of the best things for you to do is go find the bread and the sword. Now, scripturally, we know that, that the bread and the sword are always used as metaphors for God's word. So before you start running to your buddy, before you start running to the preacher, before you start running to some book, or before you start running to some TV show or some podcast, you need to run to God's word. You need to run to God's word and, and see what God's word says about your situation. That's what David did. David goes out in verse 20, in chapter 21, he finds the bread and the sword. Chapter 22 happens. We call that the cave of Adullam. A lot of cool stuff happened in the cave of Adullam, but David finds himself hiding in a cave. After he's in the cave, he leaves the cave and goes to the Philistines. And when he's, he's trying to live with the Philistines and, um, and he gets kicked out, he goes to the enemy and gets kicked out of the enemy. So he gets kicked out of his house. He gets kicked out of his enemy's house. 
My man has no home. He's living in a cave, and this is kind of where his life is. Verse 23, the Bible, I mean, chapter 23, the Bible says that David rescues a city called Keilah. And you know what they did to him? They called Saul and said, we know where he is. Yeah, he just rescued us. Sometimes whenever you feel betrayed and you feel hurt, it's like even when you try to do something good, you get turned on again. It's like not only did the boss, not only did the the king, not only did the main person turn on me, now everybody's turning on me. Even the people I'm trying to help are turning on me. And that's what David's life was like. I need you to see the, the, the downward spiral of David's life here. I need you to see how everything just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better. Chapter 24, the Bible says that David's hiding in a cave. And Saul has to use the bathroom. And Saul's chasing David. And Saul takes a break and he goes to use the bathroom in a cave because he needs privacy. My son went to my brother and sister-in-law's house the other day. And he was watching their kids. And my nephew, Josiah, went to the bathroom. And, and G2 was telling me, he's like, Dad, he was in there for like an hour. Like, we kept calling. Are you okay? He's like, I'm okay. And he kept calling, and Gabriel tried to peek in to see, are you okay? And he said, privacy, please. Privacy, please. Sometimes you just need a little privacy. So Saul's trying to get some privacy. Well, guess whose cave he goes in to find privacy? David's cave. David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. Saul's up in the front of the cave, and they say, David, you can go kill him right now. You can end all of your misery. And what does David do? David sneaks all the way up to Saul while he's using the restroom, and he cuts off a piece of Saul's cloak. Like Saul's got a a, a cloak, and he cuts off a piece of it just to prove that, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. So David spares Saul's life. Chapter 26, the same thing happens again. Saul shows up falls asleep, David sneaks up to him, and this time David steals some of his stuff just to prove, I could have killed you again, and I didn't twice. David spares Saul's life. Chapter 27, guess what though? Saul's still chasing David. David has to run back to the Philistines again. Chapter 29, he gets kicked out of the Philistines again. My man can't catch a break. He's doing all the right stuff. He's sparing people's lives, and he still keeps getting kicked out of places. Then in, verse, in chapter 30, the Bible says that David's home is invaded and burned to the ground. His wife, his kids, all kidnapped. All of his men, same thing happens to them. They all, now his men turn on him. Now his own men, his own friends, his own family turn on him. And they all want to stone him and kill him because of what's going on in their lives. So David's lost his home. He's lost his adopted home. He's lost his actual house. And now the people closest to him want to kill him. And then in chapter 31, Saul dies. And then in Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 2, David becomes king of Judah. And I think in 2 Samuel, chapter 5, he becomes king over all Israel. So Judah was just a portion of Israel. So I just want you to see a couple of things. He gets anointed. He slays the giant. He becomes king over Judah. He becomes king over all Israel. These are high points in my man's life. But there's a deep, dark valley in between those two high points. There's a place of being outcast and betrayed and pain. There's a place of being an outlaw. There's a place of being, of being in conflict. And David's struggling in this time frame. And so I want to read to you something that David said that he wrote 
I want to read something David wrote. It's in Psalm chapter 27, verse 14. So you would think David's going to write, I really hate this. God, you've abandoned me. God, I hate what you're doing to me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to go eat some worms. I don't know what that is. Some, some old TV show. But the Bible says this in verse 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, yes. Wait patiently for the Lord. I want to tell you something real quick. One of the things that we talked about earlier, we talked about allowing the Holy Spirit to do some work in our life before we get into the message, right? We, we said that the key to Christianity, if you want to know what it means to be Christian, the key to Christianity is learning how to submit to God. It's not about believing. It, it, it's, not a, it's not about, uh, when we talk about believing, we talk about repenting, we, we talk about being baptized, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about reading our Bibles and praying. These are all good things. But at the, at the very base, it's about submitting everything you have to, to Christ. It's about giving up everything that you have to Christ. It's about submitting your will. It's about submitting to, to God's will. It's about submitting to God's timing. It's about submitting to God's plan, not to our own. And so David had to learn. He said, wait patiently for the Lord. David had to learn how to submit to God's will. You see, that whole valley uh, of being betrayed... We're talking about maybe some scholars saying somewhere between 15 and 20 years of being on the run. We read it as a handful of chapters and we think it was like two weeks of bad times. But no, David, some people think David could have been as old as and maybe even younger as 15 when he killed the giant. But he was in his 30s when he became king over Israel. So there's this whole time frame in between. They're saying it could be somewhere between 15 and 20 years of living on a run, living in caves and ditches and trying to hide out with the Philistines and getting kicked out of the Philistines and and having someone chase you and hunt you down. David says that he's being hunted like a dog for 15, 20 years. We get upset when we have to go through, you know, five days of hell. And David spent years in this process. And I just want you to know something today. It's in that process that God developed David into the greatest king of Israel. If it had not been for the process, David wouldn't be who he ended up becoming. Sometimes what we do is is we forget the, the process. We like the idea of conception. We like the idea of uh, of, of a new baby. Like, we like to take pictures of new babies. We've got a lot of people having babies in our church, and we're constantly getting bombarded on Facebook and, and social media with a bunch of pictures of babies, and mamas and babies, and daddies and babies, and babies and dogs, and just babies everywhere, right? We've got all these babies everywhere. And, and here's the cool thing. Everybody loves that part. Everybody loves that part. The problem is we don't always love the whole nine months of being pregnant And then the actual birth. And a lot of mamas are shaking their heads right now. They're like, yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. Conception is fun and it's great and we all like that. (laughs) After birth pictures are fun and great and we all like that. But it's this whole process in the middle. Nine months of pain that we don't necessarily care for so much. I remember when my wife was pregnant, I went through a hard time. (laughs) People don't ever tell you that it's going to be hard on the husband too. I mean, I had to suffer. I had to suffer. My wife, when she was pregnant with, with Gabriel, our oldest, um, when she was pregnant with him, she, would, she didn't have morning sickness. She had afternoon sickness. Very convenient. Very convenient sickness. 
And she would come home in the afternoon and she would start throwing up. And so she would take, uh, we, we got her some medicine and it was this stuff called fenugrin. I don't know if you've ever heard of fenugrin or not, but fenugrin is this little bitty baby pill, little tiny, like if you blink, you'll miss it, little tiny pill. And Perry took one fenugrin and slept for three days. And so we decided we had to break it into like quarters, right? Like literally it was so small, she could have snorted it. And it, it was just like little bitty, and then she's asleep. And so she would come home in the afternoon at 3 o'clock from getting off of school, and she would take her little bitty quarter of fenugrin, and then she would lay on the couch, and she would go to sleep, and she would wake up the next day. And I had, I mean, I had to cook for myself. I didn't have anybody to watch TV with me. I don't, I mean, it was terrible. It was, a, it was a long nine months. And then towards the end of the nine months, she couldn't sleep in the bed anymore. She had to sleep on the couch. Well, I'm not going to sleep in the bed by myself like some single guy. I was going to go sleep on the couch with her. But obviously, she had this huge belly, and I couldn't sleep on the couch with her. So I had to sleep on the other couch. Can you imagine two weeks on a couch? It's very hard on the husband. And then she decided to give birth. And um, it was her choice. It was her choice. She could have kept the baby as long as she wanted. She chose to give birth to that kid. And so we're sitting there, and, and, um, and, and she's, she's giving birth, and I stay, you know, north end. And so I'm up here, and I'm just, I'm, and the doctor's like, you ought to come down here. I was like, no, no, you're good down there. I'm good up here. And so I'm just with Perry, and, and I'm, I'm at her face. And so the whole time, Perry and I are there, and she is saying, you've got to breathe with me. You've got to breathe with me, or I can't do this. And so I'm like, okay, let's do the breathing thing. Let's, you know, I'm doing the breathing thing. What I failed to remember was whenever you're doing all of that breathing, you also have to inhale. And so all I'm doing is exhaling and I'm exhaling to the point that my brain starts to lose oxygen. And I looked over at the nurse. I said, something's wrong. And I start passing out, right? So I had to go sit down for a little while. It was very hard on me to give birth to my son. It was very difficult. We love, we love the event, we love the event, we don't love the process. We love the event, we don't love the process. You teenagers that went to camp, you love the event, you love going to camp, and you love having the preacher get up there and preach, and you love having the big worship band get up there, and the lights, and the sound, and you love all the other kids down front worshiping God, and when the preacher says, you need something from God, and everybody comes to the altar, and everybody's getting touched by God, you love the event, but what happens on the Monday after camp? Are you still pursuing him the same way you did? See, there's this process that we have to live through. What happens whenever you go to school? And nobody at school wants to worship with you. Nobody at school wants to pray with you. Nobody at school wants to hear your stories about what God's doing. Are you still going to go through the process? We love the events. We don't love the process of getting there. And so we got to learn today, God, what are you teaching me in this process? We love being the in-law. We don't love being the outlaw. God, what are you teaching me in my outlaw season of life? And some of us are going through an outlaw season. And I said earlier, we've talked before in a very general sense, but today might feel a little bit more personal because we're talking about David being betrayed by somebody, so it becomes a little bit more personal. So you need to be aware of that. I've got 
I've got four things that I feel like God is teaching us in the process. Four things that he teaches us in the process of, of, of the outlaw season. The first thing he teaches us is the value of fellowship. And, and I, want you to tell, I want to tell you something. In these four items that I'm giving you today, there's no one thing better than another. Um, the, I, sometimes I tell you steps, and steps build on each other. These don't build on each other. These are four different things that I feel like God is teaching you. And there may be some of you today, you're going to grab one of them, and that's okay. My goal for you is to get one thing that God's, God's giving you and, and hold on to that one thing and see what God might want to teach you. Maybe it's all four, but maybe it's just one. The first one is the value of fellowship. 1 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures here. It says, David left Gath, that's the enemy's camp, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. So his family shows up. Then others begin coming. Men who are in trouble or in debt or who are just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. In David's outlaw season, in his worst season of life, God brings his family to him. This family finds him. But then God also brings a bunch of outlaws to show up. As a matter of fact, some, some scholars believe when the Bible says that they were in trouble, that that means that the king was hunting for them too. These are people that had turned against uh, the, the nation and, and the king was hunting them too. So, so David gets stuck with a bunch of rebels in a cave. You can't, you can't do away with fellowship when you're in your outlaw season. And sometimes you may not be able to choose the friends you have. But you need to have some friends. Your friends may not always be the best friends, but you got to have some friends. you got to have some people in your life. Verse 5 says this, One day the prophet Gad told David, Leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah. So David went to the forest of Hereth. That only, I only want to say that because it says this, The prophet Gad... So in other words, not only does David have his family, not only does he have a bunch of rebels with him, but the Bible says that he's got a prophet with him. Who did he surround himself with? He also had to have somebody that could, that could help him find the Lord. He had to have somebody that could help him hear from God. And then in verse 20 it says, um, Only Abiathar. So, so when, David went, when David went and got the bread and the sword, I told you that story very briefly. Saul shows up later, finds out that they gave him bread and a sword, and Saul kills every priest that was living in that city. It was a whole city full of priests. Saul kills every one of them. Except one kid got away, and his name was Abiathar. Only Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to David. Verse 23, stay here with me and don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life for the same person wants to kill us both. David kept his family close. He kept the 400 rebels close. And then he also surrounded himself with a priest and a prophet. Can I tell you something? Whenever you're in your outlaw season, when you're in a broken season, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to say, everybody's turning against me. You're going to want to say, everybody's rejecting me, and I can't trust people anymore, and I don't like people anymore. And you begin to isolate yourself. You begin to cocoon yourself in. But the Bible says in Proverbs 18.1 that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out or, or rages against all sound judgment. We cannot isolate ourselves in these bad seasons. We have to surround ourselves with people that are going to encourage us, build us up, help us, and love on us. We need to surround ourselves with people that are going to speak God's word over us and help guide us and lead us, not, with the just, not just isolate ourselves and think that we're going to make it through. You isolate yourself and you're already in more trouble. 
Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, let us, think, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. It's important that we meet together. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, as a pastor, I've seen people get upset, they get hurt, they get broken, and the first thing they cut out of their life is church. The first thing they cut out of their life, well, I can't, I don't like church because this pastor did this to me at this other church, so I'm never going back to church again. Or these, these people are hypocrites, so I'm never going. They cut out the people that they need the most in their life. They isolate themselves, but we need people to give us perspective and wisdom, and we need people to speak prophetically into our life. People that can speak God's word into our life. So that's the first thing. The first thing is that we, he's teaching us to value fellowship. The other thing he's going to teach us is how to stay faithful to our purpose. He's going to teach us how to stay faithful to our purpose. I want you to look at something real quick. 1 Samuel 22, 2. I just read this. I'm reading it again. But I want you to emphasize one, one word. It says, Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented, until David was the what? David was the what? One more time. I'm so sorry. David was the... Yeah, see, it's so much better whenever you all participate. David was the captain of about 400 men. Now, look, he had been called to be a king and then gets rejected. And so it would be very easy for him to say, I got rejected. I should be the king, but I'm not the king. I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing. But instead, David learned to do this one simple thing. And I think we all need to learn this. He learned how to separate his purpose from his profession. He separated his purpose from his profession. What was his purpose? Yes, there's a profession called being a king, but his purpose was not king. His purpose was leading people. That was his purpose. And David decided, if I can't lead all of Israel, I'll lead who I can lead. I'll be the captain of 400 until God prepares me to be the king over a nation. And sometimes what we do is we get upset that we're not walking in the calling or in the, in the ministry or in the thing, the job that God wants us to walk in because God told me I'm going to own my own business, but right now I don't have my own business and we begin to shut down and we begin to get mad, right? But really what God's calling you to do is to lead wherever he plants you, to grow wherever he plants you and see what God wants to do in your life in that season, the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, if you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. David had to learn to be faithful with the sheep. And then he had to learn to be faithful with the 400. And then that number grew to 600. He had to be faithful with the 600. And then he had to be faithful as just the king over Judah, which is just part of Israel. And then God allowed him to be king over all of Israel. I wonder what would have happened if God would have thrown him as the king over Israel as that 15-year-old boy. I wonder if he would have made it. Probably not. Sometimes it takes a season. It might take 15, 20 years worth of a season before you get to where you need to be. When I was a, when I was a young youth pastor, I was 20, goodness, 23, 24 years old. I can't remember how old I was. I was young. And... Uh, and, and I remembered hearing the story. So my dad was a pastor, um, and he helps lead our church here, if you guys don't know that. 
Um, and so my whole life, my dad was a pastor and a missionary. And, and so me going into the ministry, a lot of people compared me to my dad, right? Um, unfairly, of course. And so, um, so I got compared to my dad a lot. And, and in that, I kind of bought into that sometimes. My dad's first job as a pastor, as a lead pastor over a church, not as a youth pastor, a children's pastor, or whatever. His first job as a lead pastor was like at 23 years old. So here I was still working with kids at 23 years old. And, and I remember somebody told me one time, they said, look, I think I've got a church that you can take. I'm, I'm resigning my position, but I would love for you to consider coming and taking my role because I'm moving away. And you, I've, I've got a church ready for you. There's like, there's, you know, so many people there and there's so much money there and I've got a church ready for you. And I remember telling Perry, I said, hey, I think this is what we can do. Like we've got this opportunity to go be pastors at this church. But what I didn't realize was God had me in this season of growth that I needed to be in, this season of maturity. He, he had me in a fire that was, that was burning out some impurities in my life. And I remember Perry telling me, because you, gotta, you can't isolate yourself, you've got to keep people close to you. And I remember Perry telling me, you're not ready to pastor. And it hurt my feelings, man. It made me so mad at her. I was like, you don't know. Obviously, she's closer to me than anybody else. And so she was like, you're not ready to be a pastor yet. And so I submitted to God's will and I submitted to my wife's wisdom. And I I maintained, I stayed in that season that was really a struggle for me. It was really an area of pain for me. It was really an area of discomfort for me. But I stayed in that season until God opened up the door at the right time in the right place. And so I just want to encourage you sometimes we got to learn how to how to deal with how to separate that that purpose. And I just decided, hey, if I can't pastor a whole church, I'm going to learn how to pastor these teenagers. And so so what I did is as a youth pastor, I built a whole team. I built a staff and I thought I got to learn how to have a staff one day. So I built a staff and I got a budget for my pastor and I learned how to work a budget. And I started working through the process of pastoring what I would do later on. I started working through that process with just a handful of teenagers and a handful of college students. It's important to see that that you got to separate your purpose from your profession. Sometimes the profession and the purpose don't always line up. So until you get to the profession, still work the purpose wherever you are. The third thing is this. The third lesson we need to learn is we need to learn how to deal with our betrayer. We need to learn how to deal with our betrayer. Now I'm going to go ahead and say this. We're going to read a scripture. Here's what Jesus said. Let's read Jesus because Jesus is going to confuse us and he's going to make us mad. Jesus says this in Luke 6. But you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Actually, he says that with an exclamation mark. So he's screaming, love your enemies, right? Like he's getting your attention. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Now, I I need to give a little bit of a caveat here because there's this thing like sometimes we get into this meek, mild situation where we think everybody that hurts us, we need to just let them run us over. We need to just let us let them run us over. Listen, let me go ahead and preface this by saying if someone's doing something illegal, you you need to turn them in. Right? Like let's go ahead and set that as a standard right here. If you're at a if you're at a job and, and you're being betrayed, you're being abused, you're being hurt by someone, and it's something illegal, it's something that's not not right. I'm not telling you just to allow yourself to be run over and abused by somebody. Obviously, do the right thing. Okay? So let's just say that with a caveat right there. If you're in a, in a relationship and you're being abused, th- listen, I'm not telling you that you should just sit around and get beat on and then just pray for that person. You need to get out of there and then pray for that person, right? So let's just say that right from the beginning. 
But here's what, here's what it says. Jesus says you've got to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. Let's talk about what does that mean in real life? How does that work out? Let's look at what David did. So there's three things that David did. Number one, David listened to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is the story where, where, where Saul goes to relieve himself in a cave. So listen to this. 1 Samuel 24, 3. At the place where the roads passed some sheepfolds, Saul went to a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power and do with him as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience, check this out, David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill them. The, the word conscious there means his heart or his inner man. Where does the Holy Spirit speak to us? In our heart and in our inner man. Listen, the first thing you need to do with your, if you've got someone that has betrayed you, if you've got someone that has hurt you, the first thing we need to do is listen to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit telling me in this situation? David had every opportunity to kill Saul, to take revenge on Saul, and nobody would have batted an eye. Everybody would have said, this is a good thing. You go get him. But instead, he listened to the Holy Spirit. He listened to his conscience and said, nope, what I'm doing is not right, and I'm going to back up. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to protect him. So the first thing we've got to do is listen to the Holy Spirit. The second thing we've got to do is allow God to handle the payback. Allow God to handle the payback. Look at what verse, uh, the second, second time David saves Saul's life is in 1 Samuel chapter 26. We'll go to verse 8. It's a good story. Read the whole thing when you go home. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. That's a pretty bad dude right there. Like, as a man, I really like reading that. I think it's just really cool. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. But the Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. But take his spear and that jug of water beside his head, and let's get out of here. In other words, David said, we've got every opportunity to kill him. But David said, no, that's not for me to do. It's not for me to have revenge. It's not for me to take payback. That's for God to do. Again, someone's doing something illegal. Turn them in. Yes, that's part of, the, that's part of life. But in this situation, David has the opportunity to attack and chooses to allow God. He says, God can handle his own thing. I'm going to stay innocent. The third one is this. Trust isn't always part of forgiveness. I want you to hear that. Trust isn't always part of forgiveness. Jesus told his disciples, you forgive someone seven times 70. You keep forgiving them. If they come to you and repent, you keep forgiving them. But Jesus never said you trust those people. He never mentioned that. Look at what David did. So, so David, verse, I mean, chapter 26, he saves Saul's life. He calls out to Saul. He says, look, I got your spear. I got your water jug. What does that mean? That means I was at your camp. 
I was at your bed. I could have killed you and I spared your life. And Saul begins to say, oh, David, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have chased you down. David, come back to Israel. Come back home. And then the Bible says that Saul left and David went the other direction. But I want you to look at the next chapter, verse 1. It says, but David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory and I will finally be safe. I want you to notice what what David did. David said he can ask for forgiveness and I can forgive him. But it doesn't mean I have to trust him. Because one day he has proven that he's going to turn and he's going to kill me. Everything that had led up to this point, the spear, the suicide mission, the assassination attempts, the multiple years of chasing and hunting and killing. And David said, I don't have to trust him, but I have to forgive him. And, and I just wanted to throw that out because so often in life, in, in, in church and in Christianity, we just think that everybody's going to live this kumbaya lifestyle and we're all going to get along and it's all going to be good. And I do believe that there are places of restoration. I do believe that with all my heart. I got an email just this week from a lady that I don't even know. Um, and apparently she had e- emailed me like three or four years ago asking me to pray for her family. And I did. And she emailed me back and she said, hey, my, my marriage was a total wreck and my husband was, was leaving me and we had all this bad stuff happening. And I just want you to know, I asked you to pray for me. And she said, and now our marriage is fully restored. My husband and I are Christians and we're serving the Lord. Our kids are serving the Lord. Everything has been restored. It's all good. Life is wonderful. So yes, I do believe in restoration. But in situations like this, when Perry and I had an issue, um, we had an issue with the pastor that time. I just told Perry, like, I can forgive him, but I don't know that I can trust him. I would never go work for him again. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? Like, there's got to be that place where we also recognize the fact that, that there, there's a, a level of trust that has to be earned. You don't just give trust out willy-nilly. Now, in a marriage relationship, in a, in, a, in a family relationship, yes, that trust can be earned. It can be brought back. But, but you've got to know that just because I say I forgive you right off the bat doesn't mean I have to trust you right away. There may be levels of accountability that you're going to have to walk through in order to fix this thing. The last one is this, and this is where I'm going to stop. We have to learn God is teaching us. He's teaching us about fellowship. He's teaching us about forgiveness. He's teaching us about um, our purpose. The other thing he's teaching us is how to strengthen our relationship with him. What we do sometimes is whenever we get into one of these bad seasons, when we feel depressed and hurt and, and, and thrown out, we, get, uh, we tend to dive deeper into our depression and deeper into our discontentment. We tend to dive deeper into our isolation, and, and we don't grow at all. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that it says this in verse... Three. When David and his men saw the ruin, so, so David was out fighting, and while he's out fighting, while he's out doing the Lord's work, the Amalekites come in and they wipe out his entire city. He had been given a whole city to live in, they wipe out the entire city, they burn it to the ground, they steal his wives and his kids and all that stuff. And it says in verse 3, when David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families... Uh, they wept until they could weep no more. And some of us have been in that place. You've been in that place where you've wept until you can weep no more. You've given everything you've got. You've poured it all out. David's two wives, um, Ahinoam and from Jezreel and Abigail, uh, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. Verse 6, David was now in great danger because all of his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. 
This is the key verse. It says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, now some, some translations are going to say, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. This is a great translation, and you should absolutely listen to it. There's a, there's a place in life where you may not get encouragement from everybody else. Even the people you've poured into, even the people you've trained and you've, you've worked with, they start turning on you. And when they start turning on you, there's a time when you've got to encourage yourself. When nobody else is encouraging you, you've got to pick yourself up. I absolutely believe in that. But there's another translation to that word. And that other translation to strengthen himself in the Lord meant, means to strengthen his relationship with the Lord. In other, mean, in other words, in a, in a moment where everything is falling apart, in a moment where there's total chaos, in a moment where, when everything's burned to the ground, and when there's no hope left, David deepens his relationship with God instead of pulling away from God. And I see so many times people tend to, they tend to lean towards the blaming God. And David said, I can blame him or I can just stay in this process that I'm already in. And I can go deeper with him. I can get closer to him. I can get stronger in him. My doctor, a uh, friend of mine, uh, Daniel Smith, is a, is a friend of mine. I'll give him a shout out. And so, Daniel, I, I, I tend to be old and broken most of my life. That's just how I, how I live my life, I think, now. And so I've got this bad back. And, and I discovered my bad back when I was probably 30 years old. And I was camping one day. And I was sitting on the ground. And I literally stood up. Have you ever had one of those moments? Like, like you expect that when you're 80 or 90, I got it when I was 30. And I stood up, and when I stood up, my back said, Neh. and when my back locked up, I, I had to have a friend of mine, uh, for real, he picked me up and had to carry me to my vehicle because I couldn't walk. And from that time forward, it, it just every so often, I'll turn, I'll tie my shoe, I'll bend over, I'll sneeze funny, and whenever I do something, my back will lock up. And, and one time my back locked up, and it was hurting, and I couldn't get it loose, and I was talking to Daniel and trying to figure out what I could do, and he said, hey... In these moments where you can't work out like you normally do, he said, do something else. He said, go do a bunch of curls and get big arms. And I said, Daniel, I would have to do curls until I die. There's no way. But he said, build something else when you can't use your back. Build something else. And it always stuck out to me. I just thought it was a really interesting thought. And, and it hit me today, actually, before, right before I came up on stage, that thought hit my, my brain. And I was thinking, I was thinking, this is exactly what he's talking about. When I'm hurt in a lot of different areas, when I'm hurt in these other areas, there's one area I can always grow in. When I don't feel like I can fulfill my purpose, when I don't have the job I thought I was going to have, when I don't have the relationships I thought I was going to have, when everybody's turned against me, there's one thing I can still work on, and that's my relationship with God. That part I can still do. That I can still dive into. Why don't you stand up with me this morning? I want to end and we're going to pray. So there may be some of you today that need prayer. You're saying, Gabriel, I'm going through one of these hard times. I'm, I feel betrayed. I feel hurt. I feel broken. Um, I, I'm going through this outlaw season of life. And if that's you and you're going through that outlaw season of life, we want to pray with you. I've got a team of people that we trust. They're going to come down to the front and they want to pray with you this morning and they want to agree with you. Just like David had to surround himself with a prophet and a priest. Can I tell you something today? There's nothing weird about surrounding yourself with people that will love you and pray with you. People that will hold you up and not let you down. So what we want to do is we want to offer that opportunity to you in just a second. And, and before we do, I want to read this verse. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 19. It says this, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit 
Then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. This is what David was doing. He was growing his roots down into God's love to keep him strong. When everybody wants to stone him and everybody wants to kill him and everything is gone. Verse 18, and you may have the power to understand all um, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. And you may experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete or mature with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. He says you'll be made complete and mature. In other words, the process will be over at some point. The process will be over at some point. And some of you feel like this process has taken too long. And it hurts too bad. Can I tell you something today? If the process is too long and it hurts too bad, grow deep roots into the love of God. And allow God to minister to you today. Allow him, allow him to strengthen you today. Allow Him to mature you today. Allow Him to complete you today. Amen? Why don't you bow your heads with me this morning. God, I just pray for everybody in the room. And I just ask that as we're standing here preparing for, for prayer, that your Spirit would move on our hearts. Just like Pastor Jonathan sang earlier, we want the Spirit of God to move over the face of the water, over the face of the deep, over the, the, the lonely void of my life. God, the areas of my heart and my life that are broken and hurt. God, I need your spirit to move over me today and begin to minister to me today. And so I pray for everybody in this room. Just like David said, he said, wait for the Lord. Be bold and courageous and wait for the Lord. And so God, today, as we wait on you, I pray that you would make us bold and courageous. If you need prayer this morning, maybe you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to submit everything to Him. Maybe you're going through this hard time and, and, and you need people to surround you. Maybe you're dealing with a betrayer and you're saying, Gabriel, I'm struggling with that. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today, as we sing one last song before we dismiss, I want you to slip out of your seat and come down to the front and let somebody pray with you about whatever it is that's going on in your life this morning.